0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with award-winning veteran jazz trumpeter Carl Fisher. He talked about his new 2022 single. It's a cover of What a Wonderful World, done as a tribute to the greats that postured as more than just trumpet players. There were also innovators in the music, styles, and social movements that surrounded them. Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie... Miles Davis, and Maynard Ferguson. Over the years, Carl has been seen on some of the biggest stages in the world as a featured soloist and multi-instrumentalist, as a part of the record-breaking sold-out stadium and arena tours with pop music icon Billy Joel and so many other wonderful adventures. It's a great
1: wide-ranging conversation, enjoy. So what's your favorite barbecue place? I can't remember the place, uh, you know, when you said Kansas City, it just kinda hit me. There was a guy, uh, I, I'm going to go over to my bookshelf now. I used to, I used to know a girl. Oh, I used to come to Kansas out of Kansas City. Sounds like a song. I used to know a girl in Kansas yeah. City. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there was a guy who was a famous chef. I'm going to look it up macho cookery. Let's see. Yeah. Let's pull it out. He had a couple of restaurants. This guy is Peter Harmon. He was called the food okay. guru. This was going back 20 years ago. Um, yeah. The guy was cool. He's a Kansas City. Uh, yeah. Burnt ends and a whole deal. Love it.
2: Oh man yeah that's the thing with everybody talks about whenever they leave here they lament the barbecue that it's gone because it's just good you know um you know i got a funny quick story you know you 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 hear the name domino and then you think kansas city and, and i got a funny backstory here when i was a kid billy joel used to send us autographs in the mail and we never quite knew why and as i got to be an adult i found out that so my grandfather had a sister that was married to Billy, or had a brother that was married to Billy Joel's sister, and they were good friends. So it was a weird second cousin thing, and the kids in school was just thought it was the coolest thing in the world, because this was in like the early to mid 80s when he was heating up. And uh, yeah, so we had, we had a weird connection, and my dad actually grew up in, uh, yeah, he, he was up from, he's from Massapequa. So when he was a kid, he actually played with Billy. So it's like there's this weird connection wow. that I've always known about him, and uh, so, yeah and i actually saw you guys play at kemper arena back in the late 80s and my god the show it's just it, it's a phenomenal show you know yeah he he,
1: he he's pretty amazing man and it's funny because now the band's a prize uh you know, I'm a Long Island guy. Um, I'm from actually, my, my, I have relatives in Babylon. It's funny you say that. You know, most of us are Long Island guys. Uh, a few of us, uh, you know, have moved away. I'm in Florida now. But it's funny because, um, you know, it's six degrees of separation. Everybody has a cool story. And uh, he's just—he's like you, man. He's a normal dude, you know. So. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, the one thing that's interesting, I just watched that 30 for 30 on the 86 Mets.
1: Were you a fan at the time? Believe it or not, I wasn't a I was a Yankees fan. It's funny, man. Gotcha. I I I wasn't a Mets fan. I, you know, I was a craze in my neighborhood. Long Islanders were all Mets fans. But I was I was into the uh I was into the Bronx dude for some
2: reason. That I didn't realize how gonzo that team was. Like truly <laughs> out, I mean Yeah. <laughs>
1: I that's mean it was perfect uh, perfect analogy, man.
2: God, that perfect yeah, for <laughs> I mean, they were talking about the plane ride after they beat the Astros to go to the World Series. They destroyed it and they said that they all got the bill and all of them were like, No, we're not gonna pay for it but man, I mean just the panache and just the debauchery that was going on, it was like a Motley Crue documentary. It was like, Holy oh, dude. shit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah now, so were you a Mets fan? Oh,
2: my God, yeah. In fact, it's weird because in 85, the Royals won, but I was a Mets fan because I had just gone up there to Long Island to my dad's place or okay. my grandfather's place. So I just kind of got grandfathered into it. But whenever they, <laughs> you know, really hit 86, I was like, this is unbelievable. I was a big, you know, sports fan. So, sure. uh,
1: yeah, so I just kind of hopped on the wagon, and it was a good ride, man, for sure. But, man, you and I will bullshit about this for weeks. It's hysterical. So I don't know if you're aware of this um... – Me being a Bronx, uh, I was, like I said, I was into the Bronx Bombers, but uh, I don't know if you were aware, but Billy closed and reopened Shea Stadium, so I actually was involved with that gig, actually, the one platinum record I have hanging in my office, is called Last Play at Shea, and we closed it, I want to say 2007 or 2008, I can't remember the year, but we, you know, we closed Shea Stadium, and Billy... Being a Long Island guy, he was a Mets fan. I still is a Mets fan. And I, I, again, yeah. I'm a. I was a. I was a fucking Yankees fan. It's hysterical. So anyway, <laughs> long story short, we're you know Billy has all these acts come. Um, Roger Daltrey and a who? You know McCartney did McCartney opened Chey standing with the Beatles back in the sixties. Yeah, um, yeah. So, man, I mean, it was like if you let, watch this DVD. It's called Last Play at Shay and it's exactly a hundred percent right. I ended up hiring an extra a bigger horn section and a keyboard player. We hired a, a string section. Um, we wanted this big, grandiose thing. Garth first came. We had a whole bunch of guests. But the creme, creme de la creme was we were hoping that McCartney was going to come. We weren't sure. He was coming from London from another gig. So long story short, he landed uh, about 15 minutes before we went to Encores and he had a motorcade from JFK Airport to, to the backstage. So I'm just getting off. We just finished... Uh, the last tune, we're getting ready to go to encores. So I, I go down, uh, and there's Paul McCartney. He showed up. So, you know, wow. not only did he open it, he closed it. And so that was it was pretty amazing, man. So, that you know, the last play at Shay was, but i uh, shit you not, I had a Yankees hat and pinstripes in my road case behind the stage. <laughs> I didn't have enough balls to wear it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have enough balls to wear it, Joe. <laughs> but you had but.
2: you had to represent. You can't turn on your people like that. So you were representing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know, want to create man. a right. That you yeah. know, and you know, there's there's times in your life where you believe in the existence of a higher power and that right there, the fact that Paul made it and all of it came together, that's beautiful. That's poetic.
1: Yeah, it, it was amazing. And even the driver that drove him was the same driver that drove him to the stadium in the sixties. Oh, wow yeah I man, it's pretty amazing there's a documentary on it last play yeah. a documentary i believe and it talks all about the shit it's like you said it's poetic It's you can't, can't make the shit up you know i have um, to watch it it's pretty yeah. amazing there's a guy walking around i have this big road case full of horns um that come on and off the stage constantly and this guy's pacing the floor and he's walking he walks into my road case with my horns in it and almost knocks one of the horns over in the case i'm like and it's this big dude i'm like can I help you, sir? Because, you know, to close backstage. I'm like, can I help you? He turns around. He goes, no, Carl, I'm sorry, man. I didn't mean to knock into your shit. It's Garth Brooks wearing a Mets jersey. Oh, my. Wow. And the guy was the coolest dude. He, and he knew every, he knew everybody's name in the band, which I thought was totally unbelievable. And um, he said, I'm just really nervous. I said, dude, your car's Brooks. What the hell are you nervous for? He goes, right. he goes this is Billy Joel on his home turf. He goes, this is Billy Joel yeah. on his home turf. That's why I'm nervous. And he came, and he, he sang Shameless, which is like a country version. Uh, it's one of Billy's tunes, and he did a country version back in the day, Garth. And it was the number one hit for Garth. So he came off the stage, and I said, you still nervous? He goes, no, I'm good now. So he was just like, oh, a <laughs> cool dude, man. I could go on for an hour about that night. But anyway, I'll shut up now. <laughs> hey, no,
2: amen, man. You know, when he, he did, when he did his farewell, he did like three weeks, two weeks, I think, sold out here in Kansas City. Man, it, you know, you find out real quick, you know, even if someone's famous, like how cool they are. Like I've always heard that Garth is like one of the nicest cats in the room. Like just straight up cool guy. Straight up. Billy, I've always gotten that feeling. I remember seeing behind the music on him and he was just, you know, he was just the dude, man. And he was, yep. he was kind of like a lot of these guys that when they get big, they're like, God, my God, I'm just a guy playing music. But I always think about Billy as the piano man. He's the guy that would probably like to be in the bar doing his thing. In fact, one real quick story. I don't want to deviate too much. There's a local no, cat cool. named Joe, Joe Cartwright. He's a piano player here. He's been doing it for years. And he told me a story when I interviewed him that Billy, after a show, came up. And no one really knew that he was there. But he loved Joe. And he sat there. And it was kind of like the piano men were together. And he said that Billy was always cool and took care of him. So, Hey, um, you know,
1: you know, this, explain to me. This is a great story because... We were in Kansas City. This is going back about 14, 13 years ago. We were at the Four Seasons, and there was a, jazz, a piano player playing at, at the Four. It was either Four Seasons or the Ritz Carlton. I can't remember. We stayed there all the time. And sure as shit, Billy Billy calls the band. He goes, "Hey man, I'm going downstairs for uh, to hang out," and he ended up hanging out with this piano player and playing.
2: That's it. It was Joe Cartwright, and it was probably at the Ritz because he played the there Ritz. all the time. And I remember, yeah, that was And I remember it. Joe it was-
1: telling me that story yeah so and that was it i was there for that i remember yeah. that very well because now wow. check this out at the rich joe I, yeah joe cartwright because i remember meeting him he was a solid dude man tell him totally. i said hello and yeah. so now check this out this is really freaky the bellman at the rich carlton is a trumpet player yeah and i used oh, to wow. play with maynard ferguson i used to go through kansas city this guy was a maynard ferguson freak so I check into the, you know, we've been through Kansas City multiple times. Every time I show up, and I became really good friends with this guy. And this guy was giving me his horn to play with Billy, with Joe. And I was, I think I was drunk. And I didn't want no part of it. And I was just like, no, it's, you know, let Billy do his thing. But it's crazy, man. And then that same week, he took me to the Blue Room. Was that the place? Yeah. Yeah, dude. yeah, man. Yeah. We hung out at the Blue Room. I did play at the Blue Room. So, yeah, what a great city you have, man. Everybody's so cool, you know. Yeah, people love it here, man.
2: I mean, it's like everybody kind of rotates back around. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad you guys have great memories. And it seems like everybody that comes here, there's just kind of like you said, the six degrees Long Island. There's just (laughs) there's always this like world from Florida to New York. It's kind of the same thing with Kansas City. Yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful serendipitous thing. But yeah, man, Carl, it's great to catch up with you. And and, and you know, I I think the thing that's interesting that's been haunting obviously for two years is this whole pandemic thing and for cats that are getting out with new music hopefully we're going to start hitting some better times in 2022 what a wonderful world wonderful single you have a great ensemble going on here talk
1: to me about this project oh thanks joe man yeah no it's uh it's been a long time coming it's been about almost three years give or take stuck in my head this whole project with ted eye which It's called uh, Tribute to Evolutionary Trumpet Icons. Um, And it actually happened on the road with Billy. Uh, You know, there's so many great trumpet players that are not only wonderful trumpet players, but added so much to just American jazz music. And, you know, I could go, there's a a lot of them, but the four I picked was, you know, starting with the father of jazz, basically, Louis Armstrong. Uh, And then, you know, jumping into the bebop thing, Dizzy Gillespie, um, which is a, uh, you know, another love love affair i have with dizzy as far as uh, also with pops and then you know you talk about just totally changing the game playing modal modal more melodicism is you know the birth of the cool of miles davis you know not only do these guys you know were great trumpet players but their music changed the landscape of of what we call jazz i believe and then i the fourth guy i picked uh, there was about 10 guys i picked but uh it was a simulation uh with my career um was the late, great Maynard Ferguson. I was with Maynard's band for over 12 years. And uh, Maynard had a, such an affinity for Pops, Miles, and, and Dizzy. He, were, he was great friends with all those guys. And even though Maynard wasn't... Uh, I, I say a, a luminary as far as composition-wise, when Maynard would play, uh, you just knew it was him. And he did so much for the music commercially also, going into uh, high schools and colleges and, and bringing young people up. So I wanted to kind of uh, do a tribute to these gentlemen in my own way. I remember Maynard always saying to me when I was in his band and recording with him, he would always tell me, you know, uh, okay, now play like yourself you know, don't, don't try to play like me. Don't try to play like Dizzy. And that was one of the biggest lessons I learned from Maynard. And that kind of held true with this project that got stuck in my mind with Ted. I um, was trying to, uh, you know, have uh, uh, one step forward uh, or two steps forward and one, one step behind me in the past and in, in honoring these guys. So it kind of worked out really well. And I uh, was very lucky to uh, run into some old friends of mine here, uh, when I moved back to Florida, a guitar player friend of mine who actually went to school with back in the day, in, in, in the 80s, was here in town, and we kind of drummed up a relationship, and I ran into a drummer friend of mine that was a friend of a friend who I really dug playing with, and the, this bass player I played with about 25 years ago also. So having LaRue Nicholson on guitar uh, and Luis uh alicea on drums and patrick Bettison on bass was a really nice foundation we rehearsed for a long time and i put these arrangements together um and rehearsed them and played them before we even recorded them just to kind of make sure i was doing it justice so hopefully that explains a little of that joe
2: (laughs) it certainly does man and you know it's interesting maynard of all of the interviews that i've done maynard has launched billions of dreams (laughs) on this planet like there's so many people that are like, yeah, he came to my high school. He was here. I thought, and they're like, man, that guy was sheer power. Just blows you away. And when you, you you hear that on the album too, he is like, just get just punches your eardrum, man. He he just had power. Yeah, yeah. Maynard was an anomaly
1: because not only did he have power and intensity, he played uh, to me. He played a battle like nobody could. He, um he had a side to a uh, side of his playing that. Uh, a lot of people don't really recognize if you listen to Maynard play ballads it's something like an viol- opera singer and very po- poetic and, and and beautiful and if you look listen to Maynard back in the day well i'm sure you hear heard these re- recordings he did some recordings with Clifford Brown um and Clark Terry um playing bebop and he's hanging playing bebop and Maynard would play some bebop that was just come out of the blue and we'd be like oh my god you know it's just uh first degree of separation because he was hanging with those guys back in the day. I mean, he told me multiple stories about playing Birdland uh, back in the in the fifties with the Birdland Green Band with Maynard's band. Uh, and his best friend was Miles Davis. Miles had a small little band with John Coltrane and kind of bollaterally. And so they wow. would block sets. And so they'd open for each other. Miles would open one night, Maynard would open another night. And they became very good friends and I've heard multiple stories from Maynard's and mouse. Regarding the way Miles would approach certain things harmonically, and then uh, he would share. Miles would share that with Maynard. Maynard would share um, the cal- the, uh, the physical uh, aspects of playing trumpet with Miles, and they, they they were really, really. You wouldn't know it because you know they both have. Uh, they're both totally different characters, but they you know have some really wonderful stories about those times through Maynard, and you know again that kind kind of shines through and. In, in, with Ted Eye, one of the things was not just trying to represent the music, was actually trying to tell these stories, and I appreciate you letting me tell these stories, Joe, because what we did all was the premise with Ted Eye was having spoken word and having, well, I mean by spoken word, is samples of Maynard talking, Miles talking, Dizzy talking, and Pops talking, and video in my arrangements. So my the arrangements we wrote for these for this project, our are our, are our bookended uh, with either samples or video of these guys talking in the arrangements. Sometimes there's even interludes when we play live, uh, where we'll we'll be on a vamp and uh, we'll have the, one of the artists come in and talk. Uh, you know, so again, that's it, it, so kind of a multimedia scheme is what Ted I uh, I want to do too because it's one thing playing the music, but man, these guys were just so pivotal and. In, in, in this American art form, um, again, and it's four guys that I I took that were my upbringing. But you know, I'd be remiss to say you know you, we still have Freddie Hubbard. We have the great late great Freddie Hubbard. We have late great Woody Shaw. I, I could name you know 15 other trumpet players that I would talk about, and tenor players, and piano players, and you know. But I had, kind of had to be specific on who the guys I picked on this first recording.
2: And I think the stories are the backbone. There, And that's the other thing about Baylor. There's so many musicians that have told me he was the master storyteller on the bus. And like you're saying, there's so many wondrous stories. And it's and it's integral even to like a backdrop of this music because that's what jazz is. It's a rich tapestry of story that's just beautiful all the way through.
1: There you go, Joe. a 100% right. Yeah, really. I love
2: it. So... So speaking of all these cats and legends and luminaries, your path began. You had a big bang moment. What was your flashpoint, Jazz? How did you fall in love with it?
1: Wow, that's a very, uh, very good question and an interesting question because I don't think there was one time, I think, uh, being very fortunate growing up in uh, a half hour from Manhattan, growing up in Long Island, the south of Long Island, and having a dad as a, as a wonderful trumpet player, uh, my dad was a wonderful, wonderful trumpet player in the 50s. He actually was a really, really busy a freelance trumpet player in Manhattan, the local 802. And some of the guys he used to play with quite a bit was Machito and Tito Puente and the NBC Jack Parr show. He was a sub for the NBC Jack Parr show when it was in New York. And so he was very, very, you know, he was busy in the 50s. I'll just give you this backstory. You know, like I said, there's a lot of little stories. It wasn't one Big Bang Theory, but my dad. Uh, auditioned for Maynard Ferguson's Dreamland, uh, Birdland Dream, Dream Band in the 50s, along with my uncle who was a piano player. They went to the audition and my dad heard all these trumpet players playing unbelievably and he, he just shook his head and my uncle and him just left. They were like, man, these guys are dealing. We can't deal with this. Long story short, Band played in Birdland. My dad would go and have a drink after his set, Became friendly with Maynard. So you know the reason I'm bringing this up is you know fast forward this story until um you know uh, it's the mid mid to late '70s. I want to say '78, '79. I'm a young kid. I'm eight, nine years old. You know, uh, seven or eight years old. My dad's bringing me around to see Buddy Rich's band, the Count Basie band. You know, being close to Manhattan, my dad would bring me to all these all these great great. Uh, gigs, you know. Uh, at that time, my dad wasn't playing full. He was playing club dates and stuff like that. But he had a day job because you know he had two kids and a house in Long Island. And he decided to take that path. But my dad was still playing on weekends and playing a lot of club dates. Long story short, he's bringing me around and brought me to a couple of Maynard concerts and basically, and that was my upbringing. Um, and he had a band. He rehearsed in the basement. I had, you know, an open you know, rehearsal studio in my basement, drums, piano. And I always just wanted to, you know, my first instrument was drums. uh, And that lasted about six weeks. I busted every drum head that was on the drum. You know, I always gravitated to grabbing his horn. And my dad was very adamant about not really trying to push it down my throat. And my whole life, I just wanted to idolize my dad. Well, fast forward at this, you know, so I'm playing trumpet now. And I'm, you know, he wouldn't even teach me in the beginning. He would. He gave me a trumpet teacher uh, because he didn't want to discourage me from the father-son type of thing. Later on in down the rope, he was very instrumental in, in, in teaching me with uh, millions of tunes and, and ear training and just really just a lot of stuff that, I think it's very important now that a lot of educators don't do. However, where I'm getting with this is following Maynard Ferguson's band for years. Um, again, I really love Basie, I love Duke, I, I love the big band stuff, but I also like the small band stuff too. Uh, one of the first jazz teachers I had, again being from Long Island, was the old, wonderful Cecil Bridgewater, who was in Max Roach's uh, uh, band for years. So I used to—he uh, was my jazz trumpet teacher. I used to go to the Blue Note and see Max Roach and Odin Tope and all these guys. It was just being an upbringing, being in New York was so great for me. And Maynard's road manager and Maynard would remember me whenever I'd come. So my dad took a picture of him and Maynard in the 50s. And it was uh, with his first, my, wife, my father's first wife. And he, he cut, <laughs> my dad actually cut the picture of his first wife out. The picture and showed it to Maynard and actually gave it to me to show it to Maynard. Maynard remembered my dad from back in the 50s. And so they became not really good friends, but they were, you know, they, they remembered each other and, you know, they kind of developed a friendship. And throughout the years, man, I'd always come see Maynard and bring that picture and he would remember my name. And the road manager at the time, who was uh, was Maynard, with was, was Maynard for years, remembered us. And I would think it's a culmination of just yeah, I know I'm kinda of going around the block here ten times. But it was a culmination of just being uh having a great upbringer with my father and mom, very supportive. Being in a city where I just had so many great musicians and having the visibility to go see them and the story with my dad with Maynard in the fifties was just you can't make it up, you know. Oh no, absolutely
2: not. Well and I guess that leads me to how did things start for you professionally? How did all of the entire journey kind of begin in earnest for you wow man you've got some serious questions
1: joe um, <laughs> yes <laughs> man uh, and i'm talking talk about me going around the block again i I'm, I'm i'm not a very conventional guy i've never been so uh, the cliff notes version which is still going to be a long version is I left high school early. I left when I was a junior. I went and got my GED. I, uh, at that time, I, I I wasn't digging, going to school. And I actually had multiple offers for great music schools to go, full scholarships uh, you know, to go. And I just wasn't feeling it, man. So I just, you know, I went on a road. I, at 17, I, I decided I was going to go on a road. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go on a road with, believe it or not, a sh- uh, small stage circus out of Sarasota, Florida. And it was just having be three drums and myself. Um, and that was my first road experience. I was playing club gigs, even young as 17, you know, if I could get in. But I wouldn't call myself a professional. Um, I really think getting my GED and going on the road when I was 17 and being exposed to playing, you know, six shows a week, actually eight shows a week in six days and traveling in the trailer, was a eye-opening experience i'm like i don't know if i want to do this the rest of my life so i really boned up on trying to play a lot of different musics well not just jazz because Ms. maynard would say you know how many fourth trumpet players are there in a big band hey there's not a lot of big bands around anymore you have to play a lot of music and you have to be able to play a lot of music well and i noticed that playing um playing playing with the circus so short story short long story short got off the road with that and I was my parents retired in Florida, and I was living in Florida. I did about four and a half, five years in Florida at that time in the late '80s, and at '90 I finally I was worth saving money trying to go back to New York because I knew that's where I wanted to be. Not not only was the music there, my friends were there, and you know, so I finally moved back up to New York and playing a lot of clubs, like everybody does, you know. However, I didn't have the school situation. I did, I didn't have the uh you know the friendships of school, but what I really learned was I made every jam session, I played with every big band, reading band I could, I'd go to rock sessions at the China Club, I'd go to uh, blues sessions, I would do as many things as I could, and I was very lucky, uh, a friend of mine, a wonderful writer, composer, arranger, uh, Andy Farber center player in Long Island, was friends with, or was hanging with, and we were studying a whole bunch of scores, Duke Ellington scores and stuff like that. We were playing a lot together. He mentioned to me, he goes, hey, there's a big band getting together for Lincoln Center. I believe this was 19, the winter ninety one, I believe it was. He goes, David Berger's arranging a whole bunch of Duke Ellington stuff and getting the original arrangements from Duke, and it's going to be headed, headed by Wynton Marsalis. He goes, would you be interested? He goes, I heard there's a stage manager. There might be a production assistant thing happening. I don't know. Goes, but, you know, you might want to make a call to this guy and see, you know, if you can get a gig. So long story short, I made a call to this guy. And this guy was the late, great Andy Rendazzo, who was a trombone player with Stan Kenton's band. And he was actually putting together the tour, touring personnel for Lincoln Center, helping out. So I had an interview with him. He goes, You know, what do you do? I said, Well, I'm a trumpet player, but I really love Winton. Lou Soff was playing lead trumpet. Sir Roland Hannah was playing piano. Marcus Belgrave was playing second trumpet. Uh, Jerry Dodger was playing alto saxophone. All these guys I was big, big fans of. I said, He goes, Well, what do you know about setting up a stage? I'm like, Absolutely nothing, but I'll learn. So anyway, long story short, I, I went out for three days. They had a three day little uh, one off tour. We went out. The first day, I remember. The band soundcheck, and the soundcheck didn't really go too well. But I had my horn, and the second day, the soundcheck did not happen. And I remember uh, Winton's sound engineer, um, Dave Robinson, who had been with Winton for years, seeing my horn earlier that day. He goes, hey, you know, play, get that horn out. Play into these microphones for me for soundcheck. So I was playing into the microphones, and Winton comes in. And he goes, oh, the, the kid can play. He sits at the piano and proceeds to give me a lesson for like an hour and a half. PBS was doing a special on Winton at that time. So I might talk about, you know, at the right place at the right time, Winton really helped me out, gave me a lesson, came off the road. They gave me the gig as production assistant, and I got a call um, during that hiatus. It was about a, a month hiatus from, from Winton uh, himself and, and David Berger saying, hey, there's some fifth trumpet parts on some extended suites we're doing. With the Duke Ellington stuff, would you like to play fifth trumpet? So that, to me, was a very pivotal time because I was playing with my idols. John Faddis was uh, Lou Soloff sub uh, playing in the trumpet section. And these were all guys that I've, you know, followed around for years. I followed John around for years, and we had a little friendship. Same thing with Lou Soloff. Um, and that was my first real introduction to Winton. and Winton and I would hang. He was just so such a positive force. So I think that would, that would, if I had to pick one, I'd say that tour was the winter. In, uh, I think it was the winter of 92 is when we went out uh, fully, or maybe it was the summer. I don't remember, but it was wonderful. Yeah, actually it was the summer, but that was the first tour of 92 that Lincoln Center jazz orchestra did. And like I said, I was, uh, you know, I was young and it was a fun tour. So I would say that was, uh, that was, that was the time I could say, I guess, you know, I guess I should do this for a living. <laughs> Man, that's
2: wonderful. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's all about, part of this is about timing and all of that. So my next question to you is is that there would be so many people that would be just absolutely floored to get the chance to perform with someone like Billy Joel. How did that gig come
1: about? Interesting. Um, Yeah, I've been very blessed with gigs. I think just being visible and on the scene is very important, you know, and having the relationships with people. You know, I got the gig having relationships with Lincoln Center. I got the gig with having relationships relationship with Maynard Ferguson. Same thing with Billy when 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 that came around. I was actually on the road uh, with with Maynard Ferguson at the time, and I got a call uh, from some horn players in New York. Again, uh, he's actually on my first two records, John Scarpula, a saxophone player. Got a call from John saying, hey, uh, there is a Broadway show coming on Broadway called Moving Out. It's Billy Joel's music twyla tharp is the choreographer famous choreographer and it's going to be up on broadway we already did previews in chicago and you know we have a trumpet player trump you know trumpet player was the wonderful barry Danilian, the barry Danelian, who's a great friend of mine and uh he was principal trumpet player at the time but barry needed a sub my name came up and I, again i was on the road with maynard Ferguson at the time the girl i was with wanted me to come home and get stay home and i never considered playing broadway before nor did i want to but i thought this was an opportunity because a i was a fan of billy joel's music b i knew billy joel's music being a long islander and c uh, like i said i wanted to get off the road so i started subbing quite a bit for barry denean on the show moving out like i said i had uh, another friend of mine a trombone player that was on uh, on that show kevin osborne and it was, it was just a lot of long island morons like myself and it would just became it was a really fun band and barry daniel and left for another show and they gave me principal chair on that gig throughout this whole time tommy burns who was billy joel's music director and guitarist and still is billy's guitarist i became very friendly with and you know he was he was on the show on the moving out show he pulled me aside one day and says hey um You know, I know your principal here. The show was getting ready to close in 2005. He says, Billy's going to rehearse. We're going to rehearsals here in the next week or two. Uh, We're going to rehearse, and we're going to start playing some obscure tunes. One of them is going to be Zanzibar, that wonderful Freddie Hubbard has a wonderful solo on. He goes, would you be interested in showing up and making these rehearsals? Uh, I said, absolutely. Tell me when and where. He goes, I don't know when it's going to happen. We're going to be in rehearsal for a while. Just have zanzibar under your under your you know fingers try to have that together um mind you i've just played three years of billy joe music on Growaway, so i felt like i had a good handle on his music i thought i did i get a call around 11 o'clock at night from tommy saying hey yeah tomorrow we're going to show up at the rehearsal studio we're going to rehearse zanzibar he goes i have to tell you it's going to be a it's not the original key it's going to be a half step away so i had all this you know i did my homework uh up until i heard it was in a different key I was like, "Huh?" Showed up the next day and uh, you know, rehearsed. And Billy got we got done playing Zanzibar. Billy got up. Now, mind you, Billy remembered myself and Chuck Berge, um Chuck Burgey is our drummer with Billy, and he was in rehearsal. He just started with Billy at that time too. He, Chuck was also the moving out drummer. What Billy was amazing was Billy would show up at these moving out shows, and he remembered our name. He's like, hey, Carl, how you doing? You know, I was living in Freeport at the time. He's like, how's Freeport going? You've been fishing? You know, I'm a big fishing guy, and I'm a big motorcycle. At that time, I was riding my motorcycles a lot. So we had the fishing, boating, and motorcycles in common. So we talk about that. So when I show up to the rehearsal, we get done playing this tune, Zanzibar, and it went okay. He gets up off the piano and says, wow, we sound like grownups, and walks out. And I'm like, I'm ready to cry. I'm like, what? I get like tank, and everybody's high-fiving me like, no, Billy's, he comes back, he says, let's do it again. We played it again. and Realized that Billy equated, you know, the analogy was Billy was equating grown-up music to jazz. He says, we're not like a rock and roll band. We're playing jazz now. So that was kind of interesting, and they just kept on asking me back. And you know, I guess I'm like a disease, Joe. I just kept on coming back. <laughs> so that was how that kinda <laughs> happened. And originally, when I joined the, uh, joined the tour, it was just supposed to be for twelve gardens. Uh, first record we did, I did with Billy. It was called Twelve Gardens Live, and it was just going to be a twelve garden run, and we were going to be done. It wasn't it wasn't this big, big, big drawn out tour, tour. But he just kept on selling out these concerts, and you know they kept on asking me back. Well, we're going to we're going to play Florida. we're going to do. We're going to we're going to go out to this. Would you be interested in doing? I'm like absolutely, love it. So uh, it, was just, it just really worked out throughout the years. And 16 years later, I'm uh, pitching myself amazed that I'm still here. And we're having a great time, man. We really are. I'm very fortunate to be in this organization.
2: You know, and I guess that's the one thing. You know, you have this part of you. You have this other project. You know, you're you're a solitary musician on your own. So my question is, what do you like the best about being a professional musician? You know, every day you get to wake up. You get to create music, whether – you know, you're in a band or you're on your own, and this is your
1: life. What do you like the best about it? That nothing is. Con- it's I'm not punching a time card. Nothing is consistent, meaning that one day I could be playing a lead trumpet chart for an R&B artist. The next day I could be playing tenor saxophone uh, on moving out, playing moving out in front of 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden. The next day I could be in a re- uh, rehearsal studio with Ted Eye. There's no two days that are the same. It's very fun because it keeps you on your toes and it keeps keeps you being creative and, and, and moving and grooving. That's uh you know, uh that's part of the things I didn't like about being a Broadway trumpet player, playing the same music day in, day out. You know, you become stagnated. A lot of Broadway guys I was playing with who are unbelievable musicians, they would hit me to, Hey man, let's go down to Bird uh Birdland had a uh, Lou Anderson at that time. It was before the Birdland big band was started. Lou Anderson had uh, he was a wonderful big band writer and had a big band in New York City. And man, we'd go down. I'd play with Lou Anderson's band um, and and sight read music and you know just try to do as many different things. And a lot of Broadway guys were very smart and trying to do a lot of different things um, to to counteract playing the same music uh, so many times. Um, so that's what I love about being a musician, man. It's just being true to music, being true to yourself and and trying to to do the best job you can and being positive and being around positive people. So no two days are alike, Joe. You know, and I guess the other part of
2: this with COVID is, you know, now that everybody's getting back out to see shows, what are you noticing that's different with audiences and what do you hope we all collectively musician- and the audience realizes about the power of live music that we've been largely away from for two years, you know, kind of when we get back in earnest.
1: Yeah, that's a great question also, Joe. You know, music is the best healing power, and it, and it brings people together. And that's the thing that I'm seeing, um, and, and I'm seeing at Billy concerts, that people are just happy to be together again. I know us as a band, we're a very tight-knit group, uh, the Billy Joel organization, not just the band, the crew. I mean, we have 70, or 80 people uh, on our crew and band. And it's a, when we get together, I'm flying to New York and playing the garden. I fly tomorrow and play in Square Court Garden. We have residency there. Uh, we've been there seven years now, once a month. And it is like going to my uncle's house. It is just a family atmosphere. And not only the band and crew, but there's some fans that we have. We have the world's best fans we know fans by name. They come and hang out. They come to all these concerts and you see everybody and it's, we're all together again. And it's, it's something I can't explain. It's definitely a family. Uh, It it feels like I'm back with family. Um, And uh, it's a wonderful thing. And, the one thing I'd like to see um, I started this during the pandemic uh, I started a web hang, a uh, social media hang to bring in my, 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 my friends and my friends, whether it be musically or, or industry wise and so every week we would do a hang of via Zoom on social media on, on YouTube and Facebook, and now we have 61 episodes, and that was my uh, me and my manager Stephen Wright. We wanted to do something to keep the community. We were bored. We wanted to hang out with people. And so we would bring our friends. And last week I had a guest, chainsaw, Ricky LaPointe, who is a guitar tech with Billy Joel. Um, and so, you know, again, it's it just the pre- and post-pandemic thing is I really think everybody is happy being here in the music and sharing just the whole experience. And I just hope that we can continue doing that and being safe. And, you know, uh, I'm really hoping now – with Ted, I, and my four three other bands I have uh, that are not Billy, I uh, have three other bands I ha- have. Um, I'm hoping that it's going to open up for me uh, where I can start going out and playing and teaching. I love going to colleges and high schools and and talking about what you and I are talking about right now, just trying to have a sense of community and, and share music and stories with everybody because without that, man, the world is a very dull place in my eyes. so. Absolutely.
2: So it's all going to come down to this, Carl. I I got one last question and everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but you wake up, you live your life. You perceive who you are. Who do you think you are? I'm just a
1: freaking dumb Long Island guy that plays trumpet that likes to go fishing and likes to tinker on boats and motorcycles. (laughs) You know, what I mean, um, you know, it's just very simple, man. Uh, You know, everybody has passions and, When I wake up in the morning, I'm very fortunate. I get to have, I get to get, you know, get to play music. I get to turn wrenches on things. I like going fishing. It's just uh, everybody does the same things. Follow your passions. And if you can follow your passions and make a living doing it, hey, man, I'll, I'll leave this quote with you. And it's one of my favorite quotes my dad ever said to me. You go try to make a living your whole life and provide for yourself and your family my dad drove a garbage truck in the morning he got up and went to work he'd get off his garbage truck he'd take a nap he'd take a shower and he'd get dressed up in a suit and tie and he'd be whistling and would smile from ear to ear and put his trumpet around his back He goes, now i am going to play try to make a living when you go to play he goes because anybody can work but if you can make money going to play no matter how you look at it whether it be loving your job if you're a basketball player or a musician or have pride in what you do and make do your passion um and i've made a living going to play i don't go to work the work is the traveling the playing is the play and that's very uh, very fortunate to have
2: that man that's beautiful i love that carl Thank you for taking a minute out, opening up about your ventures and life and music. It's been wonderful and illuminating, man. Good luck as we move forward.
1: Joe, you're uh, a gentleman. I appreciate spending time with you. And I can't wait to come through Kansas City. you come through anywhere with Billy, please drop me a line and say hello. I'd love to hang out and uh, have some barbecue with you, my friend. Oh, man. Yeah, let's break
2: bread and have a drink. I'd love it. Absolutely.
0: Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Florida, New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Carl for his time, honesty, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe D'Amino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
1: Neon Jazz.